Exactly one year ago today, I rewarded myself with a 10-mile trail run in the mountains of Boulder, Colorado, after a successful day in the archives there. On my way up Bear Canyon, I came face to face with, you guessed it, a black bear. I survived, but I was a bit skittish for the remainder of the run. Many who live near or play in the Northern Rockies have similar tales, but increasingly they're with a more dangerous species, grizzly bears. Unfortunately, the science that should be governing their management and shaping policy is often overshadowed by our fears of grizzly bears and what we imagine about them. It's a prickly issue. So on this month's episode of Writing Westward, we talk with Robert Cheney, managing editor of The Missoulian, and author of the new book, The Grizzly in the Driveway, The Return of Bears to a Crowded American West. I'm your host, Brennan Rensink. Thanks so much for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about Writing Westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West. Historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation with me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else, all tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest and why we're talking to them. Robert Cheney is a journalist based in Montana and the managing editor of one of the region's major newspapers, The Missoulian. Much of his work in the past decades have focused on the environment and the thorny issues of managing our public lands and resources in the West. In his new book, The Grizzly in the Driveway, The Return of Bears to a Crowded American West, published by the University of Washington Press in 2020, Cheney traces the recent history of grizzly bear reintroductions to different regions in the Northern Rockies the complicated, intersecting issues of the actual role they play in their ecosystems, and the fears we have about them, imagined malicious personalities we project on them, and resulting politics that often overshadow science in policymaking concerning their management. As an apex predator of immense size and with immense destructive and deadly capabilities, grizzly bear encounters are not something to be taken lightly. However, as Cheney illustrates from various angles, successful balancing of ecological needs and human activities in the Mountain West must be driven by more than our fear of grizzly bears. With more and more people venturing into grizzly habitats for recreation, work, or residence, these are issues that must be weighed carefully. These are issues that will not solve themselves. 
Cheney helps us start a number of these crucial conversations and is a topic we should all consider if we travel or live in that region. Robert Cheney, welcome to Writing Westward. Hi there. You um, are a the managing editor of the Missoulian. Is that pronounced correctly? That's correct. And this is kind of the major paper in Missoula, Montana, correct? Right. We're the biggest paper on the western side of the state, uh, but since it's the fourth largest state in the country, that's uh, covering a lot of ground. A lot of territory. Yeah, you probably have reporters clocking a lot of mileage. Uh, correct. Tell us a little bit about your your personal history as a journalist uh, based in Montana and kind of as a, a journalist in the West. So I actually grew up in Missoula uh, and then went to work for a little paper called the Hungry Horse News up on the edge of Glacier National Park. Uh, the Bozeman Daily Chronicle um, did some freelancing, did some magazine work and eventually came back to my hometown paper where I was a reporter for about 25 years. Uh, and I am just as of about uh, the start of this year, the managing editor of the paper. We have a staff of about uh, 20 reporters and photographers, and we cover pretty much everything from the Canadian border and actually across the border uh, down to Idaho and Wyoming, uh, which includes probably the uh, biggest two chunks of occupied grizzly bear territory uh, in the continental United States. So what has your personal reporting beat been over these last decades? What are the main topics that you've focused on? For the last 10 years, I've been the uh, outdoors, natural resources, and science reporter, um, mainly covering the environment and uh, our relationship with nature and recreation, um, wildlife management, park uh, and wilderness activities and uh, what people want to do with them, what's happening within them, awful lot of fire coverage, and on a fairly regular basis, bears. Is this mainly an excuse just to get to hike more as a reporter and play in the outdoors? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or yeah, just this, a nice a nice uh, side effect, perhaps. <laughs> no, this, this is, uh, um, I, I told the man who is replacing me as the outdoors reporter that if I do not see him sweaty and dirty on a regular basis, he's not doing his job. That sounds good. What is it like being a reporter working on the environment and environmental issues uh, in a, a region of the, you know, the rural West that often swings fairly conservative and is sometimes at odds uh, or or for which some of these topics are quite fraught. How, how have you navigated that relationship? Um, I back that up a little bit in the sense that um, there's an awful lot of different ways that people relate to the outside world that can be very different from their inside politics or even their inside family history or things. Um, I have found, uh, especially in the hunting crowd, um, that people whose uh, politics would probably come to blows in a voting booth are out, um, you know, watching each other's backs and sometimes saving each other's lives and cooking each other's meals uh, at hunting camp because they have a shared love of the outdoors and the chase and the whole tradition of uh, being a predator because um, that's what hunting is, if you get right down to it. Uh, I'm a hunter. 
Um, at the same time, there's a very uh, distinct and challenging division between urban Americans and rural Americans. And again, this isn't necessarily political. Uh, if you think that something between 80 and 85% of Americans live on about 2% of the United States, we are just packed into these urban cores where, you know, the, the closest you're going to get to nature is the street tree that's growing out of the sidewalk. Um, and then you get to some place like Montana, uh, where, you know, we're about the same size as France. Um, with 1 million people. We sometimes joke that we are a, a mid-sized city with really long streets. <laughs> but we have incredibly asymmetrical political power because of that, because of the way the, uh, the American system is set up. So, for example, the vote of one Montanan is the equivalent of the votes of about 66 Californians if you look at it in terms of uh, electing a senator to the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, Congress. Um, you know, I have access to my senators and, and my representatives far beyond what my colleagues in, in bigger states do. But those senators have exactly the same one one hundredth of a vote as the senators from New York and Florida and other big urban states. So there's that political oddity mixed mm. in here. The flip side of that is that all of the things that we uh, get excited about, the national parks, the wildlife, the big public lands, the where the buffalo roam, all that business, all of that is national public trust. So while, uh, especially in the case of wildlife, um, we manage that on a state level, the Montana Department of Fish, Wildlife and Parks has sort of the very first touch responsibility for managing wildlife in this uh, state. All of those critters are part of what they call the national trust. So you own the bears and the elk and the salamanders and everything else, you have just as much an interest in them and their welfare as I do. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a really sticky thing to get for people to get their hands on because, you know, when you're in the back of beyond out here uh, and you're thinking, man, you know, those guys from Chicago, they don't know squat about what we're doing. They have no connection to what's going on here. So, why do I care what they think? Well, the fact is the Endangered Species Act, um, the, all the rest of the Environmental Protection Acts that we have apply to just as much of every square inch of Montana as they do everywhere else in the country. So we don't have sort of exclusive uh, squatters rights mm -hmm. on what goes on here. But we are closest and we're fastest. And there's a, a constant tension there between what we want to do uh, locally. So, for example, the, uh, the three states that have all the grizzly bears, Montana, mm -hmm. Idaho, and Wyoming, the three governors in the last few months all decided to uh, petition the federal government to take the bears off of 
the Endangered Species Act. Again, yeah, this, and maybe we'll get to this. This has been on, ongoing. Right. Delisting. Um, yeah. So they're, they're all pushing for that, but altogether they represent something less than 5 million people. And there's another 330 million people who also have a vote in this. Yeah, because the bears, the wildlife, as you say, it's part of the na it's part of the national public uh, trust. Exactly. So whose yeah. cards count on the table yeah. when we start pushing and shoving? Well, this gets to we've talked about on, with a lot of writers on the podcast about these tensions of you know insider outsider conflicts between Westerners and you know outside federal powers that come in and manage local lands, and you know, this is an ongoing tension. Uh, in so many ways. Well, maybe we, we should uh, pivot then to grizzlies, um, which is the topic of your book. Um, I, I first wanted to talk a little bit about this really fascinating idea, which I hadn't thought about, which is the really profound difference between the grizzly bear as it actually exists as a, a as a biological, um, uh, as, as an animal, um, versus the grizzly as it exists in our imaginations. That that was the core of of what got that book project started. Yeah, t tell us about this this dynamic and maybe how that led you to this book project. So, the the title of the book is "The Grizzly in the Driveway," and a little backstory: uh, book authors don't usually get to pick their own titles, <laughs> um, and we were going round and around with the. Uh, publicity folks about what the title was going to be and they wanted to use um, the grizzly on the trampoline because we had a picture yeah. of a grizzly bear taking a nap underneath a kid's backyard trampoline uh, that was submitted by a woman who was saying um, how come if a bear is in my driveway um, it's my problem but if a bear shows up in uh, Glacier National Park, then the rangers come flying in and they bring the traps and the guns and, and they chase that bear out and they take care of that bear. But if it's under my kid's trampoline or under my kid's uh, bedroom window, it's my problem. I want that bear dealt with. That bear is a threat. That bear is an evil thing. That bear is keeping my kid up at night with nightmares. Um, deal with it. The same week I got that uh, Facebook post and that picture, on the other side of the Continental Divide in a little town called Condon, there was another grizzly bear that was wandering people's driveways and they were setting up uh, remote cameras and taking pictures of it and posting it to their grandchildren and saying, look at this wonderful thing that we have in our backyard. They actually, the, the community name for this bear was Windfall. <laughs> and in the process, they literally loved this bear to death. Uh, the bear became so habituated to raiding garbage and chicken coops and whatnot that it became a serious threat. And the fish and wildlife had to come in and trap it and kill it. And the community wrote a, a letter to the editor signed by, I think it was 25 people saying we failed you windfall we we let you down we loved you to death and we're really sorry about it same animal same part of your house in the driveway 
totally different perspectives. So how do you explain that? Well, and in both cases, we're not talking about the four-legged, uh, omnivorous, apex, keystone species that roams the habitat that these driveways are adjacent to. That's an entirely separate part of an ecosystem that has a distinct function the same way that a gear and a watch has a function. And if it turns, other things turn. And if it doesn't turn, things stop. That's a biological uh, process and, and paradigm that's completely separate from the imaginary, the romantic, the melodramatic uh, character we humans impose upon what we like to call around here the charismatic megafauna. The big creature that lives in your Walt Disney nightmares and your uh, spiritual connection to the universe dreams. And that separation, that gulf, that bipolar uh, existence ripples into both what we do when we go in the woods and what the bear does when it tries to survive. We make policy based on what is very frequently uh, imagined, unscientific um, fears or, or aspirations. You write that sometimes that the imaginary bear uh, has more power over legislation policy regulation than the science, right? Exactly. Um, you know, right now in, in the three states that are petitioning for removal of the endangered species protection, one of the main uh, things that all three governors are asking for is a hunting season. And their justification for a hunting season for grizzly bears is that it would somehow reduce conflicts. There is no scientific justification for that other than if you eliminate all the bears, you will reduce the conflicts because there won't be any bears to get into conflict with. But the idea that you can teach bears by hunting them, that uh, they shouldn't come after a, a convenient food source, there's no scientific support for that whatsoever. But there may there is huge political support for it. Yeah, you're right that simply giving people even if it's only you know 10 people in the entire state you know that might get tags the fact that someone is getting to go out and hunt and kill one of these animals that so many uh people have you know in some ways demonize or fear that it does something for the broader population just the knowledge like oh at least someone's getting to go out and do something about it whereas the perception of the endangered you know species protection is that nothing's being done to solve this perceived problem they're just being allowed to kind of run amok or run wild which you know they're wild animals <laughs> exactly and i i really don't know how to uh respond to that in the sense that we're sort of telling ourselves this is a a, a political steam vent to release pressure and we know it won't do anything, but we're going to do it anyway, because then we have shown that we did something. And, you know, it's one thing if you're, if you buy into the delusion, 
you know, if, if I take a rabbit's foot, I will win money at the racetrack, um, cause and effect. Uh, you know, if you buy into that, well, okay, there's your reality. But if you know that the rabbit's foot doesn't do anything <laughs> and you still take it to the racetrack and rub your ticket with it, um, and then, you know, try to justify what happened because of the rabbit's foot, you, you know, you, you backed yourself into a, uh, irrational corner, um, but it had consequences. It had real life results. And that's part of, again, that duality of our, the way, you know, the bear has very definite cause and, and effect. You put a bullet in a bear, it dies. Um, well, if you put it in the right place. I mean, you have a lot of stories about- uh, Well, yeah. <laughs> bullet, bullets often aren't as effective as uh, people would like. But. Yeah, they, um, <laughs> we, can, we can go into that in detail. That actually has some really important value when you're talking about how to deal with bears with bullets. But in terms of hunting and, and regulation, uh, yeah, I mean, these, po these, po books. these policies will result in the deaths of bears. Like there's a real world consequence, yeah. Or, or more to the abstract point, you put a law on the books, you will not necessarily have an ecological effect. Yeah. Or at least not the effect that you thought you were gonna have. And that's that disconnect is really, really difficult to, to reconcile. Another point you bring up related to this that's so fascinating is that uh, you know, a lot of times the loudest voices for delisting uh, or for you know tighter controls on the bears are from um, uh, lots of ranchers who have their livestock, you know, preyed upon. And that's, I'm, I'm sure, very uh, challenging and frustrating, right? To have, be it uh, grizzly bears or wolves, a very you know, kind of a parallel uh, story there with, you know, regulation of wolf populations. Um, that uh, for those who are, you know, losing uh, money or property due to grizzly bear predation, um, the, the idea of creating rules to, to manage them is very attractive. Uh, you write, but you, you write then about the paradox of trying to, you know, create rules to manage an organism that doesn't follow rules. Doesn't follow rules. <laughs> and, and so there's, go, there's always going to be a frustration uh, here because other than complete eradication, as long as there is human grizzly bear contact and overlapping territories, there's going to be, there's going to be issues, right? Yeah. Um, a friend of mine, Bryce Andrews, uh, who wrote a great book called Down from the Mountain uh, about, it, it follows very closely the fate of a grizzly bear uh, that lived just um, about 45 minutes north of where I am right now in the um, Jocko Valley on the Flathead Indian Reservation. And um, this bear met a very tragic end. It was, uh, it got addicted to corn uh, that a dairy farmer was, was growing for his cows and bears would post up in these cornfields and <laughs> they'd like, uh, not to anthropomorphize, but they'd like to make a rec room in there. They plow down a whole uh, big space and they pile up corn for snacking on later and they very carefully peel the ears and they get cavities. They lose their teeth because they were eating so much uh, corn sugar. 
um, and they would eat it to the exclusion of everything else. Uh, and this bear um, that he followed in particular, uh, at some point ventured out and tried to eat something else at somebody's house and got shot in the face with a shotgun, uh, but was still able to survive for a number of months after and eventually um, was captured and uh, euthanized. And it's a really tragic story. Uh, but it also points up the real challenges of living right on the edge of bear country. The interesting thing that I found about Bryce was he had another book called Bad Luck Way, which is about ranching in wolf country. And his experience on, on the ranch, trying to protect cows from wolf predation. And then um, he went to work for an organization called People and Carnivores, um, where he's uh, negotiating with folks about how they can operate a ranch or a farm in the presence of wolves and bears to uh, keep the bears and wolves alive. But he had this experience of being on the rancher's side. And so I asked him about that. Um, and, you know, for somebody who is, is now working really, really hard to protect the bears, he got really emotional about what it felt like when one of your cows got killed on your watch and you wanted revenge. You wanted to show that you were the, the shepherd, the, the protector, the, um, you know, it was... Uh, your duty to to save that cow and and you failed and that you know you can't just toss that uh that commitment that dedication away even when the mathematics of the business is again asymmetrically uh opposite of the emotional investment you're putting in there let me just put a number on that um just before the book came out in 2019, there was um, a report for how many cattle were killed by grizzlies in that last year. And I have to look up, the number was something like 100, 100 cows were killed by bears. That same year, in a single storm, a single winter blizzard, 7,000 cows died. From, from an act of God, you know, as the insurance people like to say, 7,000 versus 100. And I asked the county extension agent who was telling me this, you know, put this in business terms. You know, we're, we're talking about a mosquito bite versus a broken leg here, uh, or, you know, pick your metaphor. But how does 100 cows killed by bears justify a major rearrangement of the legal ecosystem when you're losing 7,000 of them in a blizzard? And his response is, we'll just have to agree to disagree. Oh, man. But for those ranchers, as you know, like it feels so different. But you, again, you, you, you write a lot about kind of the imagined bear and also, uh, yeah, so, you know, rivers, trees, uh, severe storms uh, kill magnitudes more livestock than bears or wolves ever will. But we can't, and we haven't anthropomorphized weather or demonized weather or assigned weather um, 
uh, a sense of agency, where then we can view it as a villain, that, that these are malevolent forces that are choosing to kill our cattle, uh, whereas the weather is just doing what the weather does. And so even though ranchers may be losing so many less cattle to bears than to storms, it feels a lot different. Yeah. The bears chose to, they, they use their agency, which is of course denying them the ecological realities that they're just operating within their ecosystem, uh, fighting for survival and uh, to you know, procreate and, and so forth. Or to flip that the other direction, what agency does nature have? And I think this is a, you know, it's a pretty abstract philosophical concept, but it's one that's becoming, uh, you know, according to the news on my radio this morning, it's a four foot wave on your porch in Kentucky right now, uh, when a freak rainstorm comes in and takes out a third of the Commonwealth. Um, it's, it's hard not to see that mother nature is, is, uh, getting a little agency. Like um, mother, mother nature, not just nature, yeah. but again, like, like there's, there's that anthropomorphizing a bit, huh? Yeah. Mama's pissed. But um, the difference is you can't do anything about the storm, but you can go out and kill some grizzly bears, which exactly. gives you a, a sense of satisfaction or that like, we're taking power into our own hands. We're trying to exert some control over this. And yet we have been doing that or believing we've been doing that with nature for the past century on a continental scale. We damn the rivers. We rearrange the, uh, the atmosphere, you know? <laughs> like complete fire suppression, right? Complete Not fire it. suppression, complete change of, of atmospheric chemical content with- uh, and What do you know, there's, there's consequences. <laughs> and, and yeah, you know, equal and opposite reactions. Yeah. Um, so wrapping your head around the idea that uh, we may not be in control, that this isn't some sort of a planetary terrarium with a bunch of levers and knobs, and all we got to do is, is tweak it back a couple of dials. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, the things will come back into equilibrium or like a tuning a car. Um, I see an awful lot of people still are just convinced, you know, we'll geoengineer the atmosphere. We'll spray it full of sulfur uh, in order to buy ourselves some time to figure out a new power source to replace fossil fuels. Um, you know, that that is sort of locking into that assumption um, that there are a bunch of levers and knobs that we can just yank back and forth. There's some, hu some hubris there, right? That, that history's taught us uh, usually doesn't work out the way intended. Right. But you, you're hearing me say the flip side all the time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, you know, the, you don't want to back yourself into a position, and I will not take the position of a no-win scenario. Um, no, I don't personally uh, advocate for geoengineering. But that doesn't mean I'm just going to be a, a, a nihilist and, and burn my boat on the beach and say, yeah, I guess we're just screwed. Um, you know, eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we will surely die. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know what the solution is. So I get out of bed every day and I try to find one. Yeah. And you wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
the grizzly is particularly tricky. Uh, there's a lot of factors which lead to um, these encounters, various kinds of encounters that people have with them. And you write about, uh, or, or I guess that make it hard for us to to ignore the grizzly bear. You write about the amount of uh, square mileage that each individual uh, grizzly requires, uh, and it's vast. Uh, you know, hundred square miles, uh, hundreds, hundreds per bear. Um, at the same time, human uh, settlement and development and growth is moving further and further into uh, or or adjacent to more, some of these uh, actual wilderness areas or other, um, you know, wilder lands where grizzlies can survive. Uh, I mean, Lincoln Bramwell, I don't know if you're familiar with his book about the Wilderburbs, this, you know, phenomenon of the suburbs that specifically people want to build out where they feel like they're out in the wilderness, um, they like that aesthetic. Um, but that comes with uh, grizzly bears maybe on your driveway. And for some that's like the story, those two stories you shared, the one community was celebrating it, they thought it was great. Another one, not so much. Um, at the same time, increased logging, uh, you know, things caused by climate change. There's other things that are stressing bears out in the wilderness and are, that are pushing them towards settlement. So there's so much going on driving uh, encounters. Oh, also, we haven't even, I didn't even mention, like there's more people going out into these wilderness areas. Uh, you have a, a whole section on mountain bikers, you know, that are uh, getting out there. So there, there's just so much driving increased encounters, increased contact. There is, at the same time, you gotta remember that's an extremely American viewpoint. And by that, I mean, there are other places in the world with bears, with grizzly bears versus actros. A lot more of them than we got in a lot closer situations. You get into all over the Balkan states of Central Europe, Romania, and uh, Yugoslav or the former Yugoslavia uh, countries. You know, they got 7,000 bears. <laughs> And I'm not saying they're doing it right. I'm not saying that their situation is is uh, something that we can just copy or or um, borrow from. But I am saying that in terms of people being in bear territory and bears being in people territory, this ain't a new thing that Americans are just now bumping into. Um, you know, in Japan, there are some pretty big dang grizzly bears, and they come wandering onto people's fishing boats. Mm -hmm. um, and in some places, you know, we, we slaughter them out of existence. Um, there aren't any bears in Syria anymore. Yeah. There used to be. But some of these places, they do deal with it and they think about bears differently. I, I, lived yeah. in I lived in Romania for two years and I have a lot of Romanian friends. And, uh, you know, for a lot of them, bears existed in some, you know, mythology and folklore. Uh, but uh, even those who kind of had like, you know, properties up in the mountains where there were tons of bears, they didn't talk about them in the same uh, kind of demonized way that I hear Americans do it. Um, I mean, and just in the last couple of years, a couple of videos have popped up online from a couple of ski resorts in Romania with like a grizzly bear chasing a skier down the ski run, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I asked some Romanian friends about it and they're like, yeah, you know, it. it it was not that it was a non-story for them, but 
it didn't have the same reaction. I think that the American audiences saw that and they're like, well, how could we let that happen? Like, what is that bear doing on the ski run? Yeah. It doesn't belong there. Although you might have noticed um, in Romania that there were certain political factions that were sort of pulling the American card and saying, oh, my God, bears are coming for us. We must, uh, you know, attack this. And this is obviously the, uh, the fault of the other guy's government um, that allowed this problem to get out of hand. And now the bears are going to be eating our children in the cribs. Yeah. You know, but it wasn't yeah. usually, it, was, it usually only happens when there's kind of these weird outbursts of a, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, sheep or something were, were killed or uh, just these moments. And then it kind of fades, you know, the, the topic seemed to fade away. But yeah. again, I don't live there. I haven't lived there for 20 years, so I could be misreading the current situation. But as you say, there are other places in the world with much higher densities of bears in close proximity to lots of people. Um, but they seem to be approaching it a little differently. Yeah, it's, it's a, uh, as they say, a wicked problem. It's one that's going in a lot of different directions. It does not have a uh, solution that appears at all um, accomplishable and it ain't going away. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about um, social media. This is one of the early chapters in your book. You talk about kind of the Facebookification of wildlife photography and how now like any and everyone can get a really amazing shot of a grizzly bear fully detached from actually being any kind of outdoor wilderness expert where previous wilderness photographers had a lot of expertise. Um, and now anyone can snap a picture and share it and that now becomes the predominant way in which people are experiencing bears. It's through these, you know, pictures or videos. Um, what, what does that do then to say, you know, the national parks community or, uh, you know, outdoor recreation communities that are sending or providing conduits for more and more people to get out there and to now actually encounter grizzly bears in real life? Like how are those encounters now different post-social media or during the social media era? That is, is growing so exponentially that forecasting the outcome of it is, uh, you know, I, I, I was sort of like seeing the rocket take off. I, wow, it was going fast. I have no idea where it's going. <laughs> but um, $3.99, I, I'm going to make a, a pretty high wager that 90% of your listeners know who I just referenced. That's, you know, the, the greatest mother bear in the world, according to the Washington Post in Grand Teton National Park. I will make a small wager, the 399 will be dead by the end of this year, because she has become so habituated to human food and to human contact. Um, her cubs, at least one of them, I think, has already been trapped and killed um, of her current litter. Um, but she is an international celebrity. There are bumper stickers. There are Facebook pages dedicated to her that have metastasized far beyond the numbers that I wrote about her when I finished this book now uh, about a year ago. Um, and she exists as a bear in an environment trying to make a living in uh, Jackson Hole and Grand Teton National Park. She also exists in the minds of literally millions of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok social media monitors who have God knows what kind of imaginational 
uh, imaginational um, <laughs> assumptions about what she needs, what she can do, what she can't do, and what we ought to do about her when any of those things come into conflict with some uh, human resources or human values. Um, the you know the reactions that we've seen in the past of people who pile on to park rangers whenever there is a bear conflict and come up with this uh what somebody referred to as bambi biology uh you know you, you should have just uh you know set up a buffet in the woods for her um you know i'm, I'm sure she would accept a driver's license and just travel around in a golf cart if you made it available and think, okay <laughs> i don't even know where to begin but, um but now you have this wild animal living in an urban environment and uh, millions but, of people yeah. who are going to go nuts when something happens to her yeah but at the same time this is an animal with incredible destructive and de deadly power and so if something happens along those lines uh, i mean it's a problem that we created right by you yeah. know maybe allowing this bear to become habituated to suburban living um but that doesn't make the bear any less deadly. You know, when I worked at the Hungry Horse News, um, I got to see the original publisher, Mel Reuter's old photos. And, you know, people would put grape jelly on their kids' cheeks so that a bear could come up and lick it off and you could get the picture of it back in the 1950s. Yogi Bear, hey, boo-boo. Yeah. Um, well, there's an old black and white uh, national park uh, a old like publicity reel called like the bears of yellowstone yeah that um that my 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 wife's grandparents had on like an old reel to reel and they would play it for the kids and then they would always play it backwards because then it would show the hot dogs coming out of the bear's mouth instead of in and um all kinds of wacky stuff right but yeah it was these videos are absolutely unbelievable with and the, the day that 399 you know, snaps and and kills a kid with grape jelly on his face. Man, talk about cognitive dissonance. <laughs> but mother of the year turns out to be baby killer. Those trying to manage the wildlife are kind of damned if they do and if they don't, right? Mm -hmm. If they if they remove and euthanize this bear, because the bear, you can remove it, put it way back up in the mountains, and it's gonna it's become habituated. It'll come back. Um, uh, they're in trouble if they do that. If they do nothing and then the bear kills someone, they're in trouble. So as you say, it's a wicked problem. It's it's sticky. Uh, and it's not a no-win situation. Like, we don't need to be nihilists about it, but we do need to be realists. Well, you know, the one of the biggest problems is the bear has a name, 399. So once you put a name on it, once it's no longer an abstract uh dot in the woods um, then you start piling on all of the rest of this human invention on it we have another named bear right now her name is felicia and she is hanging out on a highway pass coming into uh, grand teton and as far as i've been able to tell um, she is a wild bear she is not habituated there's no chicken coops up there there's nothing you know nobody's feeding her hot dogs but she does like a meadow uh, where she's grazing on wild foods right next to the dang highway. And it's become a massive traffic jam. 
people are traveling all over to get a chance to get a look at Felicia. And so the Park Service and the Highway Patrol and all the other assorted agencies are trying to figure out what to do. And one of their responses, well, we need to haze her off of this meadow. Well, why, why is it her problem? She, you know, she's eating dandelion. She's eating um, roots and berries like she's supposed to. We're the problem. Why don't you, you know, shoot a few tourists with bean bags? Um, and, and to their credit, they are trying to, you know, put a patrol up there and tell people to move along and, and put your phone back in your damn car and, and uh, leave the bear alone. But, you know, it's, it's trying to turn back the tide. And the, the odds are that at some point, Felicia is going to get the, uh, the sticky end of the lollipop on that deal. Um, because she's doing what she's supposed to do. And we are doing what we tend to do. <laughs> and man, um, you know, if this was a, a, a bottomless resource, then, you know, you'd, you'd kind of roll with it the same way that, you know, we, we blow up a golfer every year or so because they insist on playing during a lightning storm. Um, you know, we're not going to yank the, the golf courses and we're not going to ban golfers, but we are going to tell them, you know, if you go out with your spiked shoes and your metal rods in a lightning storm, you're going to probably die. Well, if you go out into grizzly country with your hot dogs and your uh, tiny yap dogs and whatnot, <laughs> the chances are you and the bear will probably die. You know, is that, can we just say that's an acceptable risk and, and, uh, write you off when, when you come back as a bloody pulp? Apparently not. Um, I don't know how to resolve that either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think <clears throat> I've been thinking lots lately about, you do mention briefly e-bikes and some of the technologies that are allowing more and more people to get deeper out into the back country. Here I've been thinking we have, you know, lots of these side-by-side, -side, you know, little four-person razor. They're not, I guess they're like off-road vehicles, but, you know, yep. smaller than a car, which um, are allowing, you know, just weekend warriors who really can't even, I mean, I've seen them, like, they don't even ever get out. They just drive around, but it's getting them way back there. Um, again, so it's not on the side of the highway. It's not in someone's driveway. It's like the, the driveway or, or the people from the driveway have been transported out into the middle of deep grizzly country, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we if we want to blame the bear for causing trouble on our driveway, that's one thing. But if we can we blame the bear for causing trouble when we bring our driveway out to it, that that's a little less tenable. But but again, it's increasing these encounters and interactions. And you know, take the bear out of it. They're they're going back there with their e-bikes and their side-by-side off-highway vehicles. And what else have they taken with them? A spot or some other, uh, you know, locator device where if anything goes wrong, they get a flat tire or a bad mosquito bite, they push a button and a gigantic taxpayer funded search and rescue uh, apparatus springs into action and comes and drags their sorry butts out. Um, you know, 
there, the cost of a spot button includes the insurance premium that's theoretically going to pay for that, but I haven't seen the actuarial reports to see whether that actually balances or not. Yeah, I've been curious about how it actually pays out for the search and rescue. Yeah. And on the other hand, I know that, you know, there's a heck of a lot of money to be made in running a helicopter service that uh, can fly off for a mosquito bite and then send you a whopping bill for the thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, good luck fighting your way through that. Uh, but you know, that's the house of cards that we're setting up um, based on chasing our recreational interests without considering our recreational responsibilities. The, the moral hazard of there's a safety net out there somewhere. Yeah, until the money dries up. Um, well, we need to um, slowly wrap, start wrapping up. Um, Towards the end of your book, you identify, and we've already touched on a couple of them, but uh, kind of three big realities that we need to come to terms with. And maybe you could spend a minute on each. Uh, and I'll, I'll quote what you write here. You say, making life better for grizzlies requires humans to rethink their acceptance of risk, their tolerance for inconvenience, and their responsibility for the long-term consequences of actions they've avoided in the past. So here you talk about you know, the acceptance of risk, tolerance for inconvenience, and then taking responsibility for what we have or haven't done. Um, can you spend just a moment on each of those and kind of looking forward where you see things headed? Or, sure. or where you see things are not headed, but should be? Each one of those things uh, is something that I'm seeing in a hopeful vein um, are, are becoming a much more fluent part of the general conversation. And Believe it or not, I think we all have COVID to thank for that. We, uh, um, in the sense that, you know, the problems of grizzly bears, the problems of climate change um, are these gigantic, slow moving, overwhelming uh, conundrums that it's a whole lot easier to just put your head in the sand and say, I, I, nothing I can do about it. And I can't really tell how fast it's going. So I don't have to come to a response. COVID came at us, you know, like a fastball on a baseball game. You had to respond. You had to decide what risks am I comfortable with? What uh, am I willing to put up with or not put up with in order to keep the society that I like around me? And what am I willing to pay for uh, a society that can adapt to this new and permanent problem. And we had that all just, you know, hit us like a freight train. And we tried things and some of them worked and some of them flopped badly and some of them worked here but didn't work there for reasons that aren't obviously clear. So we had to go back and figure out, okay, how come, what do we do, um, you know, test and, and peer review and, and try again and refigure the vaccine and come up with a, with a treatment. All of those same principles apply to the bigger, slower, more monumental problems of climate change and ecosystem adaptation. So you think maybe it's prepared the general public or put them in the mindset to be thinking along more productive lines for some of these wildlife and other issues? I really want to hope so. And, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that 
you know, take uh, take masks, for example, in COVID. You know, we we ordered everybody into them. Uh, we created a political firestorm around the action, around the legislation. Um, and then we did the science and found out that they had a, a benefit in certain circumstances and not much benefit in other circumstances. And what really made a more significant difference was the kind of ventilation you had in your indoor spaces. Um, but, you know, we, we all went through that process. Even if we didn't have a scientific background, we did all show up to work in an enclosed space and we did all go into a grocery store and we did see our neighbors get sick and sometimes die. And we did either get it ourselves or didn't get it. But at least we now have a common frame of mm -hmm. language to say, yeah, you know, I had to make a choice. I had to weigh some risks. That's how that process works. But how do we translate that process because I think there's lots of things in society where we have some productive kind of communal experience that puts us in the mindset. But when it comes to the realities of, of politics and policy, it's, it seems that sometimes no amount of good, productive, general public stuff can really break through the political, you know, political stalemates and how everything becomes politicized. So did, do, do you, are you optimistic that we can translate this into meaningful policy, management, so forth? I have to be because I, I really believe something that uh, Elizabeth Colbert said in an interview I did with her a little while ago. Um, you know, she writes books with the titles, you know, Field Notes to a Catastrophe and the Sixth Extinction. And a bunch of us were saying, how do you get out of bed in the morning? You know, why don't you just uh, give up? And her response was that we're living in a time where every single decision we make matters. And when you think of how many people are struggling through life, trying to matter, you know, I got up, I punched the clock, I turned some knobs, I, I tightened some bolts, I toasted some bagels, I, I bought some stocks, I taught some kids, I, whatever the hell I did. And I come back at the end of the day, did it matter? Did it make a dent? Did it have any sort of impact? I don't know, but I'll get up and do it again tomorrow. Well, now we see in real time, if we look, that our decisions matter, that people live or die because of what we decided to do. Um, and I think when we're aware of that, I think when that comes home, um, we become better people. And if nothing else, you know, we're going to die trying. And that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Well, I, I, I tend to be more of an optimist as well. You know, I'm not, I'm not an nihilist. So I think that's a good, maybe a good, uh, good thing to end on. Um, 
I, I really, I really liked this book a lot. I've been thinking a lot about bears. Uh, this next week, I'm, I was supposed to be up in the North Cascades. Uh, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about these crazy ultra runners uh, that you encounter in the middle of nowhere. And I, I had planned this big 50k route up in the North Cascades, and I think it's actually still snowed in, so I'm not going to be able to do it. But I was, I was thinking about grizzlies and like, oh, I need to get some bear spray, and you know, uh, think a little differently than I do here on the Wasatch Front, but. Um, it's a fascinating uh, uh, topic and book. Uh, I think it's something that a lot of people should be thinking about, not just because for grizzly bears, but there are so many, I think, other wildlife uh, and ecological issues that run parallel to this story. And your book does a good job of kind of priming us to think critically about them and especially to think towards, you know, productive solutions instead of just throwing our hands up and and giving up. But, uh, but there's well, Brendan, I really appreciate your you know, reaching out to folks and trying to get them involved in these conversations and uh, helping them open their eyes. Yeah, that's what we're here for, right? <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate the book. Appreciate you spending some time with us and uh, good luck uh, managing the paper and, and hopefully writing some more interesting stories. Get outside and get dirty. All right. <laughs> Take care, Robert. You too. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through, or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast, or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, dot org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers.